Good morning, Christ Point. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this cool and crisp February morning. We thank you for gathering uh, us saints together, Lord, to worship you, to be loved by you. After a week of living in the world and being overwhelmed by the cares of the world, just ask you to renew our hearts and our minds and our spirit through your word. Give us your peace. Help us to abide in you this week and to go out and love our neighbor and give glory to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Will you turn with me to John 15? We're going to be reading... Verses 1 through 17 this morning. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and have abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that the fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the father, to the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. At this time, the children may be dismissed. <laughs> Thanks, Russ. Good morning. Um, yes, uh, James is not here. Uh, my name's Billy. Uh, Gwaltney, one of the elders, I am the better-looking, younger version of James. So I just thought I would say you're welcome. Uh, No, I'm kidding, Uh, totally kidding. Um, I've got some glasses here. Uh, I'd like to pray again, if that's okay. Uh, Jesus, uh, we are desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. I pray that I would decrease, you would increase Pray that your word goes forward, do what you accomplish, um, and just thank you for um, saving us. Thanks for this time. In your precious name, amen. 
Uh, it is good to be here today. Um, what I'm going to say here today are the words that I believe the Holy Spirit has given me to share with you. Uh, he did use Pastor James a lot to help streamline them uh, and also input from Matt Carter and Josh Redberg, who are some pretty good theologians. So I just want to um, acknowledge them uh, here at the beginning. The passage that Russ just read in John chapter 15 is really good. It's like essence of life kind of good. Uh, in this text, Jesus is continuing his preparation of the disciples for his upcoming death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Um, chapter 14 ends with Jesus telling the disciples that he will be leaving them soon and that the Holy Spirit will come to them. Verse 14, or excuse me, verse 27 of John 14 uh, is one of my personal favorites. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this is applicable to everything. Uh, it's life-giving and it's all-consuming stuff that Jesus is covering here. And this continues in, in chapter 15. Today I'll be doing my best to make three quick points, okay? Uh, one is that connection with Jesus is our true hope, okay? Point number two is that this connection to Jesus will produce eternal fruit. And point three is that what Jesus commands, he also provides, okay? So point one, deep connection with Jesus is our true hope. Verses 1 through 17 of our passage today in John 15 essentially breaks down into two sections, uh, verses 1 through 6, Jesus uses an illustration to explain that being connected to him, really connected with him, uh, brings us life and that the life this brings is revealed, um, reveals by, is revealed by our fruit. Uh, then verses 7 through 17 basically tell us what this fruit looks like. Okay, So verses 1 through 6, Jesus uses an illustration of a vine and branches to show that we all ultimately do what's in our nature. To be clear, in this illustration, Jesus is the vine, as he says. Uh, you and me, we are the branches, and God the Father is the vine dresser. Okay, it looks like a vine dresser with a capital V. Okay, he's the gardener. Um, and he's the expert, God the Father is the expert at deciding which branches get pruned and which ones uh, get cut off. Verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, in this verse, Jesus is making the seventh of the I am statements that he makes in the Gospel of John. Right quick, I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. I am the gate in John 10. I am the good shepherd also in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. Now, before we move on, it's worth noting that in each statement, Jesus is not saying he's just a fill-in-the-blank. He is the fill-in-the-blank. He's not a piece of bread that might give you life. He is the bread of life. He's not just a way, a truth, and a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Jesus is clearly saying here that he is not just another nice guy offering a way, one of many ways, to God, okay? He's not just an easy way or one of the ways to find a healthier and happier life now. He's not one of many ways to heaven. He's making exclusive claims to be the everything for everyone, both now and forever. 
And verse 1 is the seventh of these statements. I am the true vine. So this illustration, Jesus is the central core, okay? He's the center of the vine. And notice that by Jesus saying he's the true vine, he's implying here that there is a false vine. Back in Isaiah 5 of the Old Testament, a story is told about a vineyard planted with love and tended with care. Um, But instead of growing good grapes, the vineyard grew wild grapes that could not be eaten. Isaiah identifies this vineyard as the nation of Israel. And when Jesus calls himself the true vine, he is making a contrast with the nation of Israel. He's saying that in order to find him, to find salvation, it does not go through the nation of Israel. It goes through him. This means that we don't need to become a citizen of Israel. That's good news. Um, But we also don't need to be in any other category from an earthly standpoint. We need to come to Jesus, repent, accept his offer of salvation, and become his disciple. Again, the second part of verse 1 identifies God the Father as the vine dresser. He's the one that tends the vine. He's the expert at growing the vine to maximum productivity and beauty. And what does he do in his role of the vine dresser? Well, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. As mentioned, you and I are the branches, and the expectation of the vine dresser, God, is that we will bear good fruit. Any good gardener wants their garden to grow, right? He or she prunes the plants or the trees so that they grow more and more. Now, to prune means to be cut off or to cut off the dying sections of a tree or a plant or a bush, and even the less than fully vibrant pieces of the good branches so that the good branches become more productive. Theologian Josh Redberg describes pruning like this. If you are connected to the vine, God is ruthlessly determined to shape you into something much better and more beautiful than you are right now. The only way that will happen is through cutting away the parts that are dying so you can grow more and more healthy. God's commitment to your fruit bearing is greater than your commitment to comfort. God will do whatever it takes for you to bear fruit. That sounds serious, doesn't it? So what does this look like for you and me if we're Jesus followers? From what I've seen, it can vary from person to person. Some pruning is outward through situations and experiences we encounter, and some pruning... I think is more inward. It's our thinking, our feelings. I think it also depends on our heart position toward God. So a question for you and me, uh, are we fully surrendered to the sober fact that outside of Jesus we have no hope in this life or the next? If we follow Jesus, have we submitted everything we are and have to him? Like everything, every corner, every nook and cranny. The harsh reality is that all of us, you, me, everyone here, no matter how devoted we are to Jesus and his ways and his plan for our lives, we all have much more in common with a ruthless dictator than we do with Jesus. I say this to make it crystal clear that we all have a long ways to go in our sanctification journey. We all need God's pruning. And if a true follower of Jesus has an area of his or her life that they won't let go of, all bets are off. Okay? He's going to lovingly prune you and me until we change. 
So if, we, if we're his, he will prune us so that we bear more fruit. If someone is not his and does not produce fruit, verse 2 says he takes them away, which is way, way worse, and we'll find out why shortly. As I read verse 2, I think it looks like God the Father is the one that I need to please. Okay, How do we do this? How do, we, how do I do this? It's simple, relatively simple. Uh, we please him by being in the vine, in Jesus, who is the one and only son. And as a result, we bear fruit. What does it mean to be in Jesus? Verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I love this, okay? Every time I read this uh, this section of Scripture and I read the word abide, I think of my friend Phil Rowe. Um, he loves this section of Scripture so much that I think he actually tried to claim it was his, okay? Um, he would drop these verses in our elder chat and act like he had discovered gold, which he had, okay? He had, but he couldn't wait to share it. And Phil is a good southern boy, so he says abide. It's like four eyes, okay? Abide. You abiding? You need to be abiding. Abide. So, I mean, if you're going to pick a section of verses to love, fall in love with, this is a good one. But I chuckle every time I read this. Um, and then I go on to thinking about Jesus. But I do think of you, Phil. Uh, seriously, though, to be in Jesus means to abide in Jesus. Okay, what does it mean to abide? Abide literally means to stay, to remain, to dwell. To abide in Jesus is both active and passive. To abide is passive in that it is a fact. Jesus is telling his disciples in verse 3 that they are already clean. All of their hope stems from this fact. They are his. This is true for all of us today who trust in Jesus as our Savior. Our position is set. It's decided. It's settled. Our eternal destination will remain settled. To abide is also active in that we receive and believe and trust that Jesus is everything we need. And this is reflected in how we live our lives. We live out our faith. To me, abiding means to live in communion with Jesus, where he and I share everything, thoughts and feelings. I ask him to show me who he is. And he shows me. I worship him. I thank him for who he is. I thank him for answering prayers, even the little ones. I journal. He speaks to me through his word. I ask for his help throughout the day. We, we kind of do life together. There's intentionality to it. There's a rhythm to it. And I'm learning how to do this more and more. He's in on everything I'm in on. He knows me intimately. And as I grow, I get to know him intimately. And this changes me in ways that are impossible to change otherwise. To abide is not just an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not a mood or a high that we chase. Okay, It's way more than this. It's a fixed reality. It is. It's also where we trust him, we live with him, and we dwell in communion. Jesus is saying here, hey, we are united as one, you and me. Now remain connected to me. Get your life from me. Get your satisfaction from me. Get your fulfillment from me. 
This is the very definition of eternal hope. And this is what Phil and I and all of us who love this section of Scripture love about this text. Jesus himself is who we need. He is the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how. He's all of it. Okay, so point one is deep connection, abiding, communion with Jesus is our true hope. What does this mean for you and me? Point two, this connection to Jesus, this communion with him will produce eternal fruit. Pick up in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In this illustration, the branches are disciples. It's us who call Jesus our Lord and Savior. And branches get their sustenance, their life source from the, from the vine, okay? From the vine itself. Well, what kind of fruit is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his fruit, fruit from his spirit. We learn in Galatians 5, this fruit is love, joy, peace, <coughs> patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As these grow in us, we grow in numerous other areas like humility, submission to each other, speaking the truth in love, generosity, and hospitality. So the vine is the key to the life of the branch, not the sun, not the rain, not ultimately anything other than the vine. If we are really connected to him, okay, if we're in communion with him, we will bear fruit, okay, and a lot of it. Then Jesus closes the loop by saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, we need to let this sink in. Apart from Jesus, without him, on our own, we can do nothing. Now, when Jesus says this, he doesn't mean that you and I can't do anything at all, right? I mean, obviously, in this life, unbelieving people are able to do things without involving Jesus, right? Some of you here today may not involve Jesus much at all. And on the surface, you produce some good things, right? Maybe a good or a decent family. Maybe you do okay in school. Maybe you do great in school. Maybe you have a great job and do, do well from an income standpoint. Maybe you have good relationships. We see this all around us. People raise kids. You know, they, they work, they live, they even care for their neighbors without abiding in Jesus. They seem to have fruit, don't they? What Jesus is saying here is that we can do nothing of eternal value apart from him. You and I cannot produce real eternal fruit Good fruit, lasting fruit, true love, true joy, true patience, unless we're abiding in him, unless we're in communion with him. Now listen, uh, as Jesus followers, this text is clear uh, that the, the key to you and me growing in patience, love, and kindness, and gentleness, is not just trying to grow in the principles of patience, love, and kindness. It's not about willpower, okay? It's about communion with him. We as humans have various passions and appetites and habits. Because our willpower is weak, and we've maybe tried and failed in the past, I'm thinking that some of us here today live as though these passions, appetites, and habits that we have pretty much overrule any expectation that God has of us ever really changing. Like we come to believe that we're essentially okay as we are. We're not in jail, right? We're not 
wanted. Uh, we resort to saying, hey, my parents were like this. So it's in my DNA, right? Back off. How can God expect me to become someone that I'm not? For example, let's look at submission. In Galatians 5, we are commanded, submit to one another in the church out of reverence for Christ. Okay, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How's your submission to others over you and around you? Are you one of those Christians who submits as long as it's agreeable with you? I thought I was pretty good at submitting. I really did until about a decade ago. You see, I have a, a, a business. I'm a business owner. I've paid some dues. I meet a nice-sized payroll every two weeks. Uh, I've reached a certain level of professional performance that came by me kind of forging my own path to a certain degree. As a Christian businessman... The idea of submission has always been fine with me until it's not fine with me. Um, You see, if I was expected to submit to someone who would strike me as being unworthy of submitting to, I would bristle a little bit. Okay, Maybe I would push back. I would resist. Now, I might do this below the surface. We might call that (laughs) passive-aggressive. Or I might just do it out loud. And God started to really convict me about this. I sensed him telling me something that I want to share with you because I think it it might be some others here that could benefit. I sensed him saying, hey, Billy, uh, I cannot take you where I want to take you and where you will want to go if you stay this way. Can't do it. So over the last decade, God, through his spirit abiding in me, has been working on me and training me how to submit as he defines it. Not Billy's definition of submission. God's definition. And it's been brutal. (laughs) Brutal. This whole thing about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, even Judas. Let that sink in. That's another level of submission that when I really got down to it, I didn't think that was really applicable to me. He's the Messiah. I'm not. It's not a doesn't apply to me. But not only is it applicable, it's the expectation. Not just of me, but of you too. All of us. So over these past few years, I've been learning how to submit as Jesus defines it. This occurs in numerous ways. Some of them are obvious. I submit when I need to, when I'm supposed to. One uh, other way is that learning to intentionally submit to people that I'm not even required to submit to. I felt his spirit nudging me to learn how to let others express themselves regardless of my opinion or my needs, simply living well with others, not needing to always be in charge, not needing to be the focus, not needing to have the last word. At the same time, in the meantime, God has also made it clear to me That any time I bristle in a way that might potentially hurt someone else, I owe them a direct apology. This is the very definition of humbling. And if they for some reason don't submit to me when they should, I might let it pass or maybe I would speak the truth in love and deal with it directly. But either way, my complete forgiveness of them is required at the same time. No secret list, no grudge list, 
No backing up the bus on people when I get home. Mm -mm. Now, I'm not going to lie. I got a few million miles to go on this, okay? Uh, There have been times that I've apologized a lot. You can ask my wife, okay? Um, But over time, it is getting less and less because God is training me. He's pruning me, and therefore he's changing me. And as we abide... In communion with Jesus, he changes us through his spirit. In my experience, this usually starts small, and then it grows over time, sometimes quicker, sometimes slower, seems to usually be slower. Over time, my relationship with Jesus consumes more and more and more of my life. I cannot imagine doing much of anything without discussing it with him. Um, Like he's in everything I do and am, everything I think, It started small and then it grew. But if I'm not in communion with Jesus, okay, the one who is changing me, then I am useless. Everything else is useless. It's true for me and it's true for you. Now verse 6 drops the hammer. (laughs) If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I wish this section wasn't in here. But it is. I didn't write it. Jesus did. Okay. Um, if a branch is not connected to the vine, it does not matter how much rain falls on the branch. It doesn't matter even how healthy the branch looks on the outside. Okay, If it is disconnected from the vine, the branch is useless. It will die and it will be thrown into the fire and burned. Now, just to be clear, The footnote in my Bible says that verse 6 is consistent with other biblical references for eternal judgment. Now, eternal judgment is the rated PG term for hell forever. In these verses, Jesus is referencing two types of branches, living branches and dead branches. And this means he's referencing two types of disciples, living disciples and apparently you can be a dead disciple. Jesus came to bring life, and all true disciples are alive. Anyone who's dead spiritually is not a true disciple and has never exercised true faith. At best, best, these people are like Judas Iscariot, the disciple in name only who betrayed Jesus. Now, to me, the scary thing about Judas is that he hung around Jesus for a long time. Okay, He was thought of well enough to be in the inner circle. But he obviously never had a genuine life-giving relationship with him. On the outside, he walked like a duck. He quacked like a duck. He acted like a duck. But he wasn't a duck. Make no mistake, Jesus is divisive. His words make people uncomfortable. His presence will ultimately divide true disciples from false disciples. And Jesus did not come to take it easy on false disciples. Verse 6, he's saying, if you're a false disciple, you'll be cut off and you'll be thrown into a pile that you'll regret being in. And please hear me, if your life does not bear fruit, then you should understand here today that you're likely not connected to Jesus. If our lives ultimately show no evidence of Jesus, then we don't belong to Jesus. And the dead branches get thrown into the fire. But if we are connected to him, the vine dresser, God the Father, will do whatever he has to do 
to cause us to bear more and more good fruit. God has an eternal perspective. Okay? <laughs> if you and I are his, he will shape us into something much better and more beautiful than we are right now. He will make us more like his son, Jesus, whatever it costs. So we pick back up in verse 7. Well, time out for a second. Um, (laughs) This is a lot of stuff to cover, okay? I'm not going to lie. 17 verses, all right? James assigned it. I took it. But I feel like we're skimming a lot of this, and so we'll be out of here in the next hour and 20 minutes or so. No, I'm kidding. It won't take that long. But I just, we could be here a week, okay? Um, one takeaway I hope you grab today, if you miss anything else or everything else, is that whatever you want or need to change in your life, John is a really good place to be and stay for a while, okay? If you want to be a better person, a better spouse, or a better friend, study John 15, okay? If you want to earn more, Become more, do more, give more. If you want to know how to please Jesus, stay in John 15 for a while. Because when we abide in Jesus, when we live in communion with him, he gra- we gradually become like him. Jesus changes us, and that changes everything. Okay? So again, picking up in verse 7, Jesus expands on what eternal good fruit looks like. This is how we can tell for true disciples. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what does eternal fruit look like? Jesus here gives us three answers. Number one, the first type of good fruit is answered prayer. Jesus says something amazing here, okay? In verse 7, he says, If we meet two conditions, we can pray and he'll do what we ask. If we abide in him, which is what we're covering today, and if his word abides in us, if if we fill our minds and hearts with his word, Now, God answers prayer. I know this for a fact. I think many of you here know this. But clearly, Jesus does not answer any and all type of prayer requests that you and I can come up with, right? I mean, he really shouldn't. We'd be wrecks if he answered every single prayer the way we originally thought it should go. I think spiritually mature believers understand this. We humans are broken and weak. God is holy and perfect. He has an eternal perspective. We can think something is God's will simply because we got chills when we thought about it. Okay? We can think of something, see a rainbow, and go, oh, that's a sign. Okay? Then when we pray, and the prayer isn't answered the way we wanted it to or expected it to be, we blame God for holding out on us. Our faith can be shaken. But there are conditions to us having answered prayers by the holy God of the universe. The first is that we abide in him. We remain in him. He is the source of our life as we've been covering. The second condition is that our thinking has been transformed by his word. Uh, And as we prayerfully read and study God's word, the Bible, we are changed from the inside out. We ask him to show us what he wants us to see and to change us into who he wants us to become. Then what we want is what he wants. 
then our desires are consistent with his desires. Then when we pray, we pray according to his word and his will, and he answers these prayers because it glorifies God the Father. God listens to his people. This universe and everything in it, everything, everything is his. He answers prayers that are aligned with him. And he joyfully responds when our prayers are offered up in obedience to his word. The second type of eternal good fruit uh, is love. Not just any kind of love, but obedient love. Verse 9 again, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. (laughs) The love between God the Father and God the Son is indescribable. And God the Son has loved us unlike anyone else ever has or could. And the way we show eternal fruit is by remaining, again, abiding in his love, and we do this through obedience. Now, please understand that this verse is not saying, Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you want me to love you, you need to obey me first. That's not what he means here. He's saying if you do love me, it will be obvious to those around you, to everyone that you love me by your obedience to me. As Matt Carter says, obedience does not earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. Now, as I grow in my Christian walk, my relationship with Jesus, it's become clear to me that it all starts with love and it all finishes or ends with love. If love does not permeate everything I am and do, then what I am and do is wasted. This is true for you too. 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love undergirding everything I say and do, everything you say and do, we're all just noisy. But if we remain in Jesus and abide in his love, we have everything. We have life now and forever. And this will be demonstrated in our lives by ever-increasing obedience. So the first type of fruit is answered prayer. The second type is obedient love. The third type of fruit we experience when we abide in Jesus is inexhaustible joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is a central component of the true disciple's life. And as we follow Jesus and abide in him and his love, he fills us more and more with his joy. Now to me, Joy is different than happiness. Happiness, I see, is more temporary, kind of uh, in the moment, based on an experience. Joy, on the other hand, is a state of being. It's like being glad. Being glad to be where I am. Being glad to be who I am. Being glad to be in Him because that's all that matters. Some here might feel like joy is gone forever. The dark clouds of fear and depression have set in and there doesn't appear to be any hope. But if we are alive, then it is proof that God is not finished with us yet. Jesus created joy. Okay, The presence of joy in our life is proof that he is in us and changing us. So this does mean that if you or I claim to be a follower of Jesus... And we're essentially always or permanently miserable, then something's wrong. Now, confession time. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think I'm a naturally happy person. 
some people wake up happy. Those people annoy me. Okay, I don't. I just don't. If I was left to my own devices, okay, if it was just Billy in his carnal state, I would be really grumpy. I'd probably be very moody. And you'd probably choose not to be around me. Like you might choose that now anyway. But I'm just saying, if Jesus wasn't around, it would be ugly. In the past, I've struggled with enjoying life. I really have. Over these past few years, I've been working on something I call the Joy Project. I've been really praying and reading and thinking about joy, how to get it, how to keep it, how to live with it, regardless of external circumstances. That's the key. Okay? Regardless. I've asked God to just allow me to enjoy whatever it is that he wants me to do. Through prayer and his word and his people, um, I'm starting to experience more joy. Ever so gradually, God is teaching me, he's pruning me to rest in the reality that I am his. And his being, me being his, is really the best place on the planet to be. I'm excited to continue growing in this discovery of joy. And the same is true for all of us. We should be excited. Now, entering the home stretch. Point one, deep connection with Jesus is our true hope. Point two, this connection with Jesus will produce eternal fruit. Now, point three, what Jesus commands, he also provides. Jesus seems to always save the best for last. Pick up in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. If you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. <clears throat> no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. (laughs) These things I command you, that you will love one another. So our passage today closes with Jesus commanding us to do something that we simply cannot do. Which is love others, love each other the way he loved us. This is simply impossible. Okay? An entire series of sermons could be preached here. Um, on my own, <laughs> I struggle to love anybody, including myself, uh, much of the time. But here he commands me and you to love each other as he loved us. And he states what this looks like in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, our military personnel have figured something out, right? If you can fight for the brother beside you or sister beside you, that's good. The greatest kind of love is not romantic love. It's not erotic love. The greatest kind of love is sacrificial love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest love is giving your life for someone else, even if they don't know it, acknowledge it, or appreciate it. That's real love. So we're all friends here, right? If we're Christians, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family, and family looks after family. Okay? That means that I'm to lay down my life for you. And you're to lay down your life for me and the person beside you. 
God is to be so big to us and our eternity with him so exciting that we would gladly die for each other today, right now. Simply put, this is impossible without abiding in Jesus, without being in communion with him. But with him living inside me and empowering me, I can do this and so can you. In our text today, Jesus goes on to call us his friends and not just servants. Again, another sermon series. Then he makes a statement that is difficult for me to describe how much it impacts me. This is the best for last. (laughs) Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I simply love this verse. It's all-consuming to me. It is a stunning reminder that all of this, everything we've covered today about abiding and producing eternal fruit is ultimately his doing. If we're followers of Jesus and true disciples, we did not wake up one day on our own and decide to pursue Jesus. We're not capable of doing that. Scripture says we were dead in our sin. Dead people don't wake up on their own. And verse 16 confirms that he chose you. He chose me and appointed us that we would abide in him. We would. And we would bear fruit. We would pray to the Father and he would answer it. This reminds me of one of my very favorite verses in all the Bible. In Ezekiel, the Israelites are really messed up. They're a train wreck, okay? They're not getting anything right, but but God has a plan. And so he takes over. Ezekiel 36, 27. I've read it before and I love it. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The footnote in my Bible says what he requires, he also provides. Let this sink in. Everything he requires, what he commands of us. He provides to us. And this is really good news for messed up people. I bask in this gospel of Jesus doing for me what I could not and still cannot do for myself. It's the best news any human can hear. And there's nothing remotely close. Second. In closing, you may know that at Christ Point, we exist to point people to Jesus. In doing this, we have four core E statements. The first core E statement is that we encounter the life-transforming power of the Word of God. So in order to point people to Jesus, we must have a personal encounter with the Word of God. And in doing so, our very lives, we are transformed and changed in dramatic ways. This is the essence of our text here today. We abide, we produce, we finish, all through and because of him being him, to bring glory to his Father. My prayer for you and for me is that we have and continue to have this encounter with Jesus. And as we do, this life gets sweeter and sweeter. And eternity, oh man, No comparison. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, um, our Savior, 
Uh, Thank you for your living and active word. Thank you for showing us who you are and commanding us to do what only you can provide. And you will provide what you command. (laughs) Convict us where we need it. Uh, Draw to repentance those listening that don't know you. Do whatever it takes. Yes, I ask that. Do whatever it takes to change us into a people that abide in you and your love. Thank you for loving us first. In your precious name, amen.